Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. I love this time of year, and uh, and it's one of the prayers that I pray for myself and for my family and even for our body here is that we would um, just have an awe and a marvel at uh, at this time of year at at what the Lord is up to and what Emmanuel means for us. And uh, but unfortunately, kind of the world starts to get involved, and we know that right after Thanksgiving, the world kind of starts fighting for our affection. It starts with Black Friday. It starts with Cyber Monday. Small Business Saturday, Shell Out Monday, Sunday, and it's just like there is stuff constantly after our attention. And one of the things that uh, the Lord has just, especially over the last few years, specifically used for me, I don't know what it is for you, but it's, it's been like kind of the, the fresh eyes of my kids to kind of see Chris, Christmas through them. Um, even this year, uh, as we get to go see Christmas lights, I'll have a three-year-old with me that probably for all intents and purposes, this will be her first year at kind of looking at Christmas lights, and I get to kind of watch the marvel through her eyes. I love uh, what this season does for just the togetherness of our family as we play games and sit around the fire and eat marshmallows and other candy and just how rich it is. I love when we're here and, and my kids will probably be over here on Christmas Eve holding a candle as we sing Oh Holy Night or Silent Night or whatever song David picks uh, for that, right? No pressure, David. But uh, we, uh, but I just love watching them. You can almost see the gears kind of turning about what child is this? that uh, we're all here gathered, holding a candle, just singing uh, about him and singing to him. And I love it. It gives me fresh eyes to marvel anew at Emmanuel, God with us, and, and, and this child uh, that we have. And, uh, and so I love December for that. And I'm also excited about this December because uniquely we're in the Gospel of John and we're not at the very beginning of it. We're at the end of John and we're in movement three of the Gospel of John. As we've talked about a lot, the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John are Jesus's public ministry. Uh, He had a three-year period where he was out and visible and teaching and and equipping and sharing the good news. And then we move to Jesus's private ministry where he begins to lock in specifically on his disciples. And now we're entering the last four chapters of John, which is Jesus's passion ministry that are begin to show us that he is the good shepherd who is now ready to lay down his life for his flock, right? That he is willing to go to a cross for us. And that's what we mean by passion. And, uh, and, and, and for some of us in this room, maybe it's a new story. For others of us, maybe we've, we've heard multiple times, we've moved through the passion narrative many, many times in our life. And yet my prayer for us is that maybe like fresh eyes with kids and Christmas that we would uh, uh, go through the passion ministry of the last four chapters of John through the fresh eyes of John. Because specifically John, compared even to the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John's going to hone in on just what king is this. He's going to hone in on the majesty that Jesus exemplifies and exudes even during the world's darkest moments coming after him. It's good, he's gonna lock in on the glory that, that, that Jesus was moving towards, specifically, who is this king? And so with fresh eyes, if you've read this, if this is your first time going through the gospel account or if this is your 500th time working through the passion of Christ, I pray that we would look at it through the fresh lens of John. 
Now you might be wondering, going, man, how are we going to kind of work through both this idea of the incarnation, Emmanuel, that uh, we should always be in and as we move through the Christmas season, the hope of the incarnation, and how are we going to pair that with this passion ministry? Well, let me just start where this book begins, both the Gospel of John, let me start where our series begin, let me start even with eternity past, because this word says that in the beginning was the word, Jesus. And Jesus was with God and he was God. It says Jesus was with God in the beginning. And it goes on to say that without him, nothing was made. Through him, everything came into being because of Jesus. He was creator. And then scripture says that the creator be entered into creation because the word became flesh. Christ became Emmanuel in Bethlehem, in a manger on our behalf as he began to move towards this. And then it says, even in this chapter, as we begin the passion ministry of Jesus, it will go on to say at the end of chapter 18, is for this purpose I was born. For this reason I came into this world to get to this moment of fulfilling God's plan of redemption, God's plan of salvation. And so you can't have one without the other. And so it's actually an incredible December that's in front of us where we get to marvel at both the incarnation, we get to both marvel at Emmanuel, God with us, and we get to marvel at Christ on the cross for us. And don't miss out on that this Christmas. Uh, you can call it my outline if you want, but there's just two things I want for us today. As we move through all four scenes in John chapter 18, we're gonna look at the arrest of Jesus, we're gonna look at Jesus before the high priest, we're gonna look at Jesus with Peter, and we're gonna look at Jesus with Pilate. But my two prayers for us as we move through this is I want us to just sit and marvel at who King Jesus is. What king is this that has come on our behalf? And I just want us to be able to sit and look and reflect. And then the second thing that I want us to do in the words of Francis Safer, I want us to begin to go, then how then shall we live? What is the right response to such a king? Because this king is unlike any king that uh, this world had seen. This was a king that didn't come to be served, but this was a king that came to suffer and to give his life as a ransom for many. This king was perfection, and yet he came to endure a sinner's death. This king is a forgiver and one that doesn't just uh, forgive, but he also begins to transform. And then he is also this faithful judge who is ready to endure the condemnation and judgment of men. And who is this king? And so turn with me to John 18, and let's begin to marvel at just who King Jesus is. And as we jump into uh, the first 12 verses of John, I'm gonna read them all. I just wanna ask, you, uh, just as, as you're reading along with me, begin to ask yourself, who's in charge here? Who's actually in charge of this arrest? Read with me verse one. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, this is referring to uh, chapters 13 through 16, the great sermon Christ has given his disciples. It's gonna talk about verse 17, the great prayer that Jesus had prayed. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron and where there was a guard in which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, they went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. But then Jesus, important distinction here, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward 
and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. And when Jesus said said to them, I am he, they drew back and whoosh, they fell to the ground. Just a glimpse, just a glimpse at the name of Jesus. One day every knee will bow, just a glimpse right here. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. And so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Jesus is protecting his disciples here. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. That servant's name was Malchus, scripture tells us. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? And then it says, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. I mean, who's in charge here? King Jesus, right? The authorities tried to lay their hands on Jesus all throughout this gospel. Three, four times we read about them trying to go seize him and yet his time had not yet come was the language that was being used. And so now Jesus is dictating the time in which occurs. He's dictating the place of which occurs. He had already sent out Judas to do his bidding and he knew that Judas would be looking for him over here. It was his leadership Like who initiates the conversation? King Jesus goes, whom do you seek? He's not fleeing from them. He's moving towards his arresters. And by what authority is this happening under? With three English words, two in the Aramaic, I am he. Jesus is in full authority of the situation. And then I, just one thing that I would love for you to detect here is also the protection that he's extending his disciples here. Twice he asked, whom do you seek? He's, 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 he's clarifying, he's, he's trying to get the people that are coming to get him to clarify their intent, that, he's not after, that they're not after everyone, that they're after only him. Because Jesus is no hired hand who is about to leave his disciples for the persecution. No, he is about to stand in front of them as a good shepherd. And he's gonna make a way of escape for him. He knew that the disciples weren't ready for the fiery furnace yet. He knew that they were about to all be scattered and he was making a place to stand before him, not to excuse their behavior, but he was seeking their protection because he is the good shepherd. And then who's orchestrating peace in all of this? The guards are bringing torches and weapons. Peter's drawn his sword, but it's Christ that de-escalates the situation. He's the one bringing peace. Christ is in full control of even his own arrest. And of all the things that I think we could draw from that truth, here's the thing that I want us to just sit back and marvel at in awe and wonder, is that Jesus is no victim here. Jesus is a willing sufferer for both you and for me. Jesus didn't get backed into a corner. Jesus was simply fulfilling the plan of redemption that had been written long before he spoke the earth into existence. And so Jesus is fulfilling this. And so I just, as you marvel at who he is as being a willing sufferer and the majesty surrounding that and the glory that he's exuding and moving towards, here's how now shall we live? And here's my challenge is that we would trust in God's sovereignty. That often God is up to far more than we can realize in a specific moment. Sometimes um, all that we can see is darkness and yet 
light is coming. Sometimes we feel mourning, but we know that joy comes at the dawn. We know that uh, in Jesus' economy, beauty comes from ashes, and that what man intended for evil, God can turn for good. God's sovereign hand is, is over all and sits above all and is orchestrating. Even here, he's got evil on a leash not excusing man's behavior, but divinely orchestrating things to fulfill his plan. And so I don't know about what's happening in your life. Let me just tell you, just a little thing yesterday for me as I was just kind of moving through, we were setting up our Christmas tree, I guess similar to the Gentiles. And uh, as some of y'all know, I had lost my mom earlier in the year and we were pulling out ornaments and, and it just struck me all of a sudden, I hadn't messed with, I hadn't wrestled with it in the last couple weeks. And we pulled out a couple of ornaments that just said from, uh, to me from my mom and they just had significant value and it just caught my heart for a second. And all those things where I was kind of like, it's those feelings of, where were you, God? What about, just gave me a chance to just sit back and go, do I trust in the sovereignty of God? That he's in control and that maybe there's some things at hand that I can't fully understand right now that he's moving in. So I don't know, what is that for you? I know in a room like this, in a season like this, I, I mean, I, I said to start it that I, I love this season, but for some of you, this season speaks of a hurt or it speaks of a broken relationship or it speaks of a loss that you're still kind of wrestling with. And I think this Christmas, this December, we have an opportunity to grow and being able to trust the sovereign hand of God amidst all of the circumstances that are coming our way. The second thing that, I, I won't do this with each of the points, but one thing I just want to call out to this is, is, uh, is there's a little bit of a comic, there's a comedic scene that I feel like, uh, that I kind of see and I kind of chuckle at, because in verse 12 it says, after, after all of these guards had, had literally heard Jesus speak and they fall to the ground, they watch Malchus's ear get physically repaired, one way or the other. I don't know if he, Jesus created a new ear or grabbed the one off the ground and stuck it back on. I don't know exactly how it worked, but it says that the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and then they bound him. Like, how would you like to be the guy that was like, hey, hey go put rope on that guy. Yeah, the guy that's like done a couple miracles right before our very eyes. And Jesus in charge of his arrest. I mean, it's, it's the equivalent of, I guess, binding Superman or, or, or close thereof. It's like Christ goes with you because he lays down his life on his own authority, not because of anything you've done. And one of the things that uh, when my awe is waning, when, I, when I'm lacking marvel in my life, one of the things that I love to do is ask people their story of grace. And so my challenge for you this December is, is is ask three, four, five people, maybe even in this room, it's okay, ask believers and just go, tell me your story of how Christ has, has redeemed and restored and rescued you. Because look, in this room, there's a lot more miracles than just a physical ear being repaired. There are hearts that have been transformed in this room and it should produce awe and wonder. And when my awe and wonder is waning, I pull out my journal in which I've logged stories of grace of you all and I just remind myself of what the Lord has done to stoke my marveling at who King Jesus is and what he does. This book is full of them, and these are like little inserts that I just keep filling up over and over again. And so ask other people their story of grace and marvel at it. I think these, th this Roman cohort, this, I don't know if they're temple guards, but the band of soldiers, it could have been 200, 300, 400 people, they, they witnessed two incredible things. 
They fell to their knees and they watched a miracle before their very eyes with Malchus's ear, and yet it's like they hardened their hearts. Let's go bind them. And they missed out on the miracles. They didn't let the miracle take its effect. And you and I can be prone to do the very same thing. Some of the awe and wonder begins to wane and we become numb and we begin to forget and we can look up in a few weeks and months and years ago, does Jesus do anything still? And it's like, oh my. Just in this room. We miss miracles all the time. Don't miss them. Record them if you have to. That's scene one and Jesus' arrest. Now let's look at Jesus before the high priest. Verse 13, it says, first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest this year. There's some details there that I won't get into, but in verse 19, it jumps back to, it says this, that the high priest, we're still talking about Annas here, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And as we keep reading, I want you to just be asking yourself, what is Jesus's demeanor during this moment? says, Jesus answered the high priest, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. So why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I have said that they know what they know what I have said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Watch Jesus's demeanor. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the the high priest. Jesus' demeanor is is so striking to me. First of all, uh, Scripture says in John 5, we'd read it earlier in in, in this gospel, that, that all authority, all judgment had been given to the Son. And yet here he is walking before human judgment. We know that Jesus is the true high priest, And yet he's going before the so-called high priest, and yet he does so, and I marvel at this, especially with that backdrop. He is a king that is calm under persecution, and I marvel at that. He's the one that's actually de-escalating the situation when the, the high priest is trying to stir it, and the people that are hitting him is trying to stir it. And Peter, who was nearby, as we're about to read, would later write this in 1 Peter 2, verse 21 through 23. And let this be, how then shall we live? When persecution comes our way, how do we live? We live peacefully. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 2. It says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. That's for you and me to follow. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was being reviled, see John 18, see John 19 next week, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So how then shall we live? We continue to live peacefully. We just watched Peter. Peter was about to fight with the sword when we last saw him, and Peter's about to flee And yet, as Peter began to live out Christ's example, he goes, no, what we need to do is we need to face it. And we face it with a calmness, even if persecution comes our way. Even if the world closes in on us, which it sure seems to be doing, so far as it depends on us, we extend peace to others. We live peacefully and we can let go of control of our lives and we trust the sovereign God with it. 
Jesus has a majestic calm here. He has no need to revile others. There's not even an ill-spoken word here. There's no eye roll. There's no grumble. There's no mumble. Calm under persecution. Leaving an example for us as to what to do. How then shall we live? Following Christ's example of calmness even amidst persecution. Let's go back to the text. Let's look at scene three. This is Jesus and Peter. Text that is familiar to us. Verse 15 of John chapter 18, it says, Simon Peter, we're going back up a few verses. It says, Simon Peter followed Jesus. In Luke, it talks about following Jesus at a distance, which was both, I think, a geographical reality, but I think it was also a spiritual distinction as to what was going on with Peter. He was moving away from Jesus. And, and, and it says, so did another disciple. We don't exactly know who. There's a good chance it was John, especially given how John typically referred to himself without his name in his own gospel. And it says, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of that man's disciples, are you? And Peter said, it was easy to kind of confirm the negative. He said, I am not. Denial number one. It says, now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. I don't, I don't know if you know much about a charcoal fire, but it doesn't throw off a lot of warmth. So you can just kind of see Peter's kind of huddled in here with the enemy, so to speak, mingling in with them. And that's what it says there. Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. Now verse 25 is going to tell us the other two. It says, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And then quickly, one of the other servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? This almost infers a positive. And Peter again denies it. In other places, we know he denied it vehemently with curses. And at once, a rooster crowed. And as Luke would record, Peter, or Peter would go off and weep bitter tears. Question for you here. In the face of your biggest mistake, in the face of your biggest sin, in the face of your biggest betrayal, in the face of your biggest embarrassment, that thing that you don't want anyone to know, that thing that you might even be willing to take to the grave, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? It might be counterintuitive. It was for me for the longest part of my journey, but what you do with it is you shine light on it and you get it in the light and you tell others about it. And I would commend you to not just tell others about it once, but you tell others about it again and again and again. You know, of, of, of if you look at all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's not a lot of things that are recorded in all four gospels. There's, there's, it's all synchronized, it all flows together, but there's just a handful of things that, that make it in each gospel. This is one of them, Peter's denials. And it's interesting to me because uh, this is a very specific event and some of the gospels were written maybe as early as 10, 15, 20 years after Jesus's life. The, the gospel of John we think was maybe written 50 or 60 years after Jesus' life, definitely 50, 60 years after this moment, and yet all of them record this event. 
And I begin asking myself, why is this one, of all the events that could have been in each of the Gospels, why is this one of them? And I'm speculating here, but I, I think it's because Peter kept telling the story. I think it's because Peter kept telling everyone, this is where the Lord found me. This is what the Lord rescued me from. I was a coward. And the Lord stretched out his hand and would later restore me. And this same guy, you turn your, turn your Bible just a few pages into Acts, the same guy that, that is talking about his cowardice, everyone else is like, but, but your courageousness now, that's what sticks out to me. And I believe it was fuel for the early church as they would marvel, not at Peter, but at King Jesus, who not only forgives, but he transforms his disciples. King Jesus forgives and he transforms. Even your greatest disappointments, your greatest failures, your greatest sins, not so that we go do them, but because he is still able to turn good from the evil that we once intended. Marvel at that. I love what J.C. Ryle said, one of the uh, commentators that I've just used all throughout the Gospel of John. He says, the same pitying hand that saved Peter from the rising waters was once more stretched out in the courtyard of the high priest. And the same King Jesus that allowed Peter to be tested would be the same King Jesus that would utterly transform Peter before the early church's very eyes. And so I know in this room that there are a lot of devastating decisions that have been made. That's just the reality of getting this many people in a room. There are devastating de decisions that have been made. You can ask me about mine. There are embarrassments, there are failures, there are, there are betrayals of Jesus in this room. And so what do you do with those? How then shall we live? You may feel like you've been permanently separated yourself from a loving God. And meanwhile, it's silently eating at you and no one knows. But how then shall you live? Let me just take you to what Jesus told Peter, even before Peter had denied him. It says in Luke 22, verse 31, it says, Simon, Simon, Satan has, has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, right? Evil's on a leash here. But I have prayed for you that your faith not, may not fail. And when it returns, go strengthen your brothers and sisters. So in the face, in light of our devastating decisions, in our light of grievous sins that we've committed or even the small sins that we have committed, what do we do? If you want to weep your bitter tears, by all means, do so. But make sure it is tears of godly sorrow that is leading to repentance. And you let those tears help you return to your Savior. And then you use that story to go strengthen your brothers and sisters. That's how it works in God's economy. It's that he takes these things that we've done for evil and he begins to turn them for good and this transformation that begins to be wrought in our lives. We have trouble seeing it, but others go, hold on a second. Is that same grace available to me? And it's your, one of your great stories, it's one of your great testimonies that you get to speak to and allow others to begin to marvel at the transforming power of Christ. And so here's one more challenge for you. As you go and listen to five stories of grace, I want you to find five people, and you can do that. It can be family, coworkers, 
you come into a lot of people, a lot of contact with people in December. You're shopping, you're eating out, any number of other things. Find five people that you don't know and share your story of grace with them. Keep telling the story. And it will continue to produce awe and marvel and humility in you as to what the Savior has done for you. And let's not see if it doesn't produce awe and marvel in the ears of your listeners as they begin to sit back and start to ask the question, is that grace available for me too? Five, that's it. So families, you can hold one another accountable. Community groups, let's hold one another accountable. But let's tell our story. We're not here to celebrate sin, but we are here to talk about the Savior that forgives sin and then also transforms sinners into courageous followers of Jesus. Peter has left us an example in which we can follow. Last scene, John 18, Jesus before Pilate. It says in verse 28 that then they led Jesus, this is the Pharisees, maybe the temple guards or any number of other people, uh, but specifically Jews here, led them from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but so that they could eat the Passover. I mean, this is the height of dead religion right here. Ritual Passover eating when the Passover, the, the Passover lamb is right before them. And so Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But the Jews said to him, is it not lawful for us to put anyone to death? This was to fulfill the word that Jesus has spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And then Jesus moves into a one-on-one conversation with Pilate. And as we read these next five verses, another question as you read with me, what's Jesus after? What is Jesus after here? It says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, very much like Jesus does, answers the question with the question, do you say this of your own accord or did others say this, say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have, what have you done? And Jesus answered, and see if this doesn't get your awe and marvel and your heart beating. My kingdom is not of this world, he says to Pilate. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to them, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What's Jesus after here? I'll tell you what he's not after. He's clearly not after human kingdoms. He could have had it if he wanted it. But it's not what he's after. He's after human hearts. He's coming so the truth might be revealed and that truth that might be received because everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Even with Pilate, Jesus knows the state of Pilate's heart, but even with him, he's gonna make Pilate declare his intention of his heart because that's what Christ is ultimately after. He goes, are you, are you, asking, are you asking this because you're interested in knowing who I am? And Pilate's like, look, I, I'm a, am I a Jew? That's your own nation, that's your own business, basically. I, 
And what Pilate would ultimately get to is, what is the truth? Um, it's impossible. The idea is it's impossible to figure it out, is what Pilate's saying. Jesus is after human hearts, not human kingdoms. And so then how then should we live as in light of that truth? We stand with truth. Both capital T, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we first and foremost represent him. We first and foremost are trying to get people to understand who Christ is. And then we stand for, if you want to call it little t truth, we stand on this book and we use its wisdom to guide our life. And we bear witness to it. And we stand with it and we defend it. We don't have to take swords out and fight. We definitely don't flee from it, but we can face it and we can face authority. And one of the things that I love that Jesus doesn't do here, he doesn't cave into authority. He doesn't compromise the truth and so it can be with us. We can face authority with a calmness and still stand with truth. Look, truth today, the Pilate's refrain is the refrain of all the ages, including today's. Today, truth, uh, and some instances can be your feelings. We hear that all the time. It's, it's my feeling that dictates my gender. It's my feeling that dictates my sexuality. It's my feeling that dictates whether this is life in my stomach. It's feeling. And then at other times, no, it's science. It's science that's driving this conviction. It's science that's saying that we need to do this or do that. And so truth is relative in today's age, just as much as it was. And truth is whatever is convenient to worldly convictions. But we stand with truth, capital T, and we are after human hearts, not human kingdoms. And so we represent Christ first and foremost. We know that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads people to repentance. When you were changed, when your heart was changed, it was your heart that was changed first before some of your other behaviors. It's when you fell in love with Christ that then it was that, man, how then shall I live? And so it shall be when we move towards other people. We're, getting, we're trying to get them to understand who Jesus is first and foremost before we're trying to get them to side with our belief or our political stance or any number of other things. We stand on truth. And even when we're scorned, and even when we're maligned, even when we're called overtly religious or overly this or, or misunderstood or led astray, we stay calm in the persecution and we stand on truth and we continue to represent Christ. And as the prophet Hosea says, we continue to speak tenderly to those that have been led astray. Because that's what our King has done for us. And I marvel that he was after my human heart more than he was after any number of other things. And when he changed you, it was your heart that he changed first. And so continue to marvel at that. And so welcome to December, where we are in this great opportunity where we get to celebrate Emmanuel, God with us in the incarnation, such a sweet grace. And we also get to sit back and reflect at the Christ that is after us, God with us and God that's after us and after our own heart. And that's the passion that we get to sit in for the next four chapters of John. Don't miss it. Don't miss out on this willing sufferer who was calm under persecution, 
that doesn't just forgive us. He, he wants to transform us into something we can't, and can't even fathom so that we can stand with him and represent him to a watching world. Grace in the incarnation, grace in the passion. As John said, it was grace upon grace when the word became flesh. And that's what we get to sit in. And so let's not miss out on that and let's rightly consider how then shall we live. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.